it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and this is the Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C., back home. Glad to be here. Glad to have you all alongside as well. Thank you for listening between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. If you can't catch us as we air, there's a podcast. It's free of charge. It's on demand every day of the week. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. On the TV side, I've been rather busy, rather occupied the last couple days, and the train just keeps chugging, chugging today as well. Special report coming up this evening Fox News Channel. I'm on the panel around 6.40, 6.45 Eastern. See you there. And then on with my friend Kennedy in the 7 p.m. hour on Fox Business Network. So lots of options if you want to catch me on the tube. Here's what we've got on tap and in store for you today on the radio side of things. Janice Dean will be joining us later this hour to talk about Hurricane Ian, which is now, I believe, a Category 3, and it is bearing down on Florida, and it could be very destructive, especially on that Gulf Coast of Florida. So Janice Dean will bring us the latest on that weather update. Could be a very dangerous one and a a scary situation for our listeners and our friends down in Florida. In our next hour, Brian Riedel is going to join us talking about some new numbers from CBO. The cost estimate for the president's student loan scheme bailout, it's now on the table from the Congressional Budget Office. It is ugly. It's just one more argument against this terrible policy. We'll delve into that. And why does the president keep lying about gas prices? It's very strange. Like, it's easily fact-checked, but he keeps saying this thing. Why? We'll get into that. In our final hour, U.S. Senator Roger Marshall, Republican of Kansas, he will be here in studio. He's a medical doctor. A lot to pick his brain about as well. That's all upcoming, but we begin here In studio, live with me, face-to-face, my friend Morgan Ortegas joins us, former spokeswoman for the State Department and Secretary Pompeo under the Trump administration. And Morgan, it is always great to see you. Thank you. Good to be on. I want to start with a very serious topic that I've been tweeting about a bit. We've discussed a little bit here on the show, but we haven't really had a guest on specifically on it yet. And that's the upheaval in the streets of Iran, particularly involving women and young people. It seems like every few years, the people of Iran, some of them, try to stand up to this horrible regime. They are often put down brutally. Mm -hmm. You see images of death, people being murdered. We're seeing that again here. Is this time different in some way? How should Americans be thinking about it? Because it's it's awe-inspiring. It's Mm -hmm. truly courageous. It's also gut-wrenching to see these young people living under this oppressive regime trying to speak out and cry out for their own freedom and being repressed in such an ugly way? It's a, it's a tough question to answer, the one of where is this going? And, it, and and that's tough, I think, to answer anywhere in the world when we see these protests. Um, you start looking closely. Um, you'll remember if you just look at modern history, um, in 2000 and I think it was 10, 
nine ten, whenever we had the Green Revolution um, in Iran, um, the Obama administration didn't really say much. They were hesitant. They, I, I think, they overanalyzed the situation. Were worried if they spoke up too much that it would therefore cause the regime to crack down more. Um, spoiler alert: the regime still cracked down, um, even though there was a tepid response. In the fall of two thousand and nineteen, when I was at the State Department, uh, we saw similar protest um, happening in Iran, and at the time we estimated that they that the regime probably killed around 1,500 people, jailed 10,000. It's hard to know exact numbers um, in these situations. They're obviously hiding it from us and not something that they're, they're getting out there. I think what's really interesting about this protest um, is, is how organic it is. Uh, you had a Kurdish woman that was in Iran um, that was killed for the crime of showing her hair. Um, and she's a she was a beautiful young woman. Her, her story, her picture has resonated early on in the protest. And I obviously watched this stuff quite close, closely. Um, I tweeted a, a, or put a picture of her on Instagram, most like picture that I've ever put on Instagram. Any social media. Um, and I think that's because she is the visualization and the representation um, of this uh, theocratic revolutionary regime. And I think that that's an important point, Guy, is we have to remember when you look at Iran um, pre-1979, pre the Shah fa- falling, before this regime came came to power, you're talking about a very modern Iran, right? You could go back and, and look at the pictures, look at the women in very modern clothes. Um, obviously, a rich, rich heritage um, as a society. Uh, the Jewish people for a long time lived pretty freely there. Um, and, and you look, I mean, I remember when I was in the Islamic Museum of Art in Doha, Qatar, um, and looking at the just number of exhibits that were Persian art, you know, that come from just a um, a beautiful people, a beautiful culture, a beautiful heritage that for 40 years, over 40 years now, um, have been have been held captive uh, by these uh, revolutionaries who, and this is an important point, these people do not want to moderate. This is the big, big fallacy in Obama and now Biden's policy towards Iran. They keep thinking if we keep shaking a bag of gold in front of them, the almighty dollar, and if we trade with them and if Western corporations um, do business with them, they're going to moderate. They're going to see the light. They're not going to want to be theocrats anymore. Um, that is the fundamental flaw and misunderstanding of their policy. There are no moderates in this regime. That's not what they believe. They are a revolutionary theocracy. I want to come back to U.S. policy in a moment, but you were talking about the beauty of the Persian culture and the Persian people and their desire to live freely. And then you contrast that beauty – with some of the scenes playing out in the streets. This is radio, so we only have audio, but I think this audio is disturbing. I think it's piercing. I think it's impossible to listen to it and not feel moved or disturbed in some way. Scenes and sounds from the streets during this crackdown of the protesters against them. Cut 29, a little snippet. Awful to listen to. And these are regime thugs grabbing, beating, dragging away these women who are standing up and removing their hijabs and their head coverings, burning them in some cases. I mean, it is incredible courage to do that. And you just have to admire it from afar. And you just you fear for their safety and for their future Mm -hmm. if they end up not toppling the regime. The regime has the guns. I know some people are calling for the U.S. to do more. 
I'm not sure that's the right approach in Iran. If it's going to happen, it's going to have to come organically from their people. I, I just agree. wonder what, what your thought is on that. What can we be doing? You just feel helpless. You want, you want to do something. You want to help these women beyond just speaking. But realistically, would that be even in their interests? So, well, first of all, what you don't do is that you, you don't um, empower their oppressors. That's step number one. Um, and I know we're going to talk about U.S. policy. Actually, let me take a quick pivot. I would just say, in, in addition to this audio that you played and all the pictures, there's also some really moving pictures um, and videos of women uh, online in Iran who are cutting their hair, who are you know not veiled and, and are taking scissors and just cutting their hair. I just saw a woman doing it at her brother's funeral who went out to peacefully protest. Um, and so these these are courageous women. Uh, I, maybe I missed it, but I, I failed to see where the squad has issued a statement to stand behind these women. I saw, I think AOC put out a statement and compared it to the fight for abortion rights in the United States. Oh, Jesus. Um, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, it's beyond beyond ridiculous. They've been conspicuously silent because they are part of the uh, a part of the class uh, that wants to elevate and empower the oppressors in Iran. So a lot of times, listen, you've been on trips with me overseas with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former secretary. Um, there are not clear black and white good and bad choices in most situations around the world. And a lot of people listening say, well, this is terrible that this is happening in Iran. You know, why should we care? Um, in U.S. foreign policy matters, because do we have a uh, silver bullet, so to speak, to take out this regime? No, we don't. We had no plans in the Trump administration uh, to put any boots on the ground or to take any military action, save taking out terrorists, as we did with Qasem Soleimani. Um, but we drew very clear red lines in, in, for them in the sand. Um, they could not touch the hair on the head of an American. They knew that. Um, and, and so when you look at the when you look at the Middle East and when you look at this theocratic revolutionary regime, um, uh, we instituted the maximum economic pressure campaign against them. What does that mean? That's a lot of words to say. Uh, we decided to make the regime's life tough. We said, you know what? We may. It, it's up to the people of Iran who govern them and who control them. But we are not going to do business with you. We're not going to tolerate you. You will not be accepted into open society, into the community of nations until you behave like a normal nation, until you stop threatening to annihilate the state of Israel, to annihilate us, um, and, and until you stop funding terrorism. Now, remember, this is not a Republican statement. Republican and Democratic administrations all certify that Iran is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, in January of 2020, Mike Pompeo uh, declass had a bunch of uh, intelligence declassified that showed that Iranian, the Iranian regime had been harboring al-Qaeda senior leadership in Iran. These are all facts. <laughs> These are from the intelligence community. By the These way, are- blowing up the old... Sunni talking Shi- point. Yeah. Oh, no, they're not going to work together because it's Sunnis and Shiites. Well, if the Shiite regime is harboring the Sunni al-Qaeda leadership, it's because they want to kill a lot of other people and they are willing to put some of those differences aside to unite in that sort of pro-Jihad, right. pro-terrorism approach. And you said very clearly and well, I think, that step one, you know, what can we do? Step one is as Americans not to empower the oppressors. And yet, unfortunately, it seems as though the Biden administration's foreign policy, just like Obama's, it's just continuity there with the four years of Trump being a big needed uh, departure from this. 
but their priority is to do exactly what you're saying shouldn't be done. They are willing to say, this is horrible. We stand with the women of Iran, but also we are going to continue our negotiations in order to pursue a policy in which we will literally give lots of money and sanctions relief to this regime. And in return, we will get this completely feckless, short-sighted, short-lived nuclear agreement. And they're so obsessed with it. And it's important for your audience to know that it is a lie when they say that it's the Iran nuclear deal or they get a weapon. Uh, this is from Senator Menendez. Go look at back at his speech in the JCPOA in 2015 whenever Congress was voting on it. This deal does not exclusively pre- prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon. No, it, it doesn't. It kicks the can down the road. Right. There They'll... are sunset provisions. Now, only in Washington, Guy, do people think they deserve the Nobel for making sure that a really hard problem is someone else's problem and not your own. Right. Just a few years later, they delay it a little bit. And now because the time horizon has shifted, the delay would be even shorter. So it would be an even worse deal than the terrible Obama deal. And yet they are doggedly pursuing it in spite of everything happening, the support for terrorism in the region, the meddling, all of their threats against Israel and other people, the terrorizing of women in their country. This has not deterred the Biden administration from walking away or getting tougher in these negotiations with this regime, which they're doing, by the way, indirectly. Through the Russians, last time I checked. <laughs> yes. The Russians, yes. of all people, it almost feels like a, a cartoon of unmoored, ridiculous foreign policy, and yet it is the reality under this team. Well, I was just published in the Wall Street Journal for the first time, by the way. Congratulations. Very excited about this. <laughs> At the end of last week, actually making that very argument that you just said, that the Biden administration actually undermines their own Russia policy uh, through these Iran negotiations. First of all, for many months, we actually had in Vienna where the negotiations were taking place, we had the Russians negotiating on our behalf. This is at the same time after Russia has invaded Ukraine, after we're supposedly trying to cut them off, after we're calling them a pariah state, all of these other things, we're allowing them to be our intermediary with the Iranians. Um, and then fast forward, and not to get too technical, but essentially what happened um, is we gave a Russian uh, nuclear energy company uh, the green light to do business in Iran, $10 billion worth, by the way. And Secretary Blinken very recently had the ability to get rid of that waiver, which I would have done right. I would have said, you know, listen, you guys... Um, you're still killing innocent uh, men and women and children in Ukraine. How about you guys stop that? And then maybe we will consider letting you have this $10 billion project back. No, they greenlit the project, $10 billion. There's no strings. You just keep doing what you're doing, yeah. and here's the big reward. Morgan Ortegas is my guest, former spokeswoman for the State Department under Secretary Pompeo. Can you stick around for one more quick segment? Uh, you can have the whole hour. I want to ask you about <laughs> the midterms when we come okay. back because you're interesting – Uh, You're doing a very interesting thing. You're engaged in a project all across the country that I want to ask you about and get your read on what's happening politically as you've traveled to all these key swing areas. Morgan Ortega is our guest on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. 
It's the Guy Benson Show, and Morgan Ortegas, in studio, very kindly agreed to stick around for one more quick segment because we were talking a lot about Iran and foreign policy, the Biden administration's foibles with Iran, which I think are just so naive and, and dangerous. But I do want to talk about domestic politics as well. You are a political animal on top of everything <laughs> else. You've been going to a lot of important states and districts, sort of hosting or co-hosting these interesting roundtable substantive discussions on foreign policy as it relates to campaigns. Talk about that effort and what you've got you know, in the hopper, if you can tell us where you're headed or where you've been. And then overall, as you travel from place to place, what's the vibe you're getting on the ground in these places about the overall moment and the trajectory of this midterm election as you see it? So it was really important to me, and I always felt this way at the State Department, it was important to me to be able to talk about national security and foreign policy in a way that brings all Americans into the conversation. Um, And I think for far too long, we have had this discussion that centers around Washington of the quote-unquote foreign policy elite, whatever that is, um, uh, where we make all of these decisions that have ramifications for the average American without having them in the conversation. Because people are busy, right? Right? They're worried about getting their kids to school and getting dinner on the table and going to the grocery store. And especially today, can they fill up their car with a full tank of gas and go to the grocery store and fill up the grocery cart? Right, These are real-world trade-offs that families are making in Biden's economy. So I founded something called Polaris National Security, uh, at Polaris Natsec for short. You can find it on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all of that lovely stuff uh, as a way to have these policy conversations um, with candidates, uh, with people in the process. So one of the first things that we did is that we went to the border in August. It was quite hot, let me tell you. But we had, uh, I think we had eight or nine Republican uh, women, conservative women who are running uh, for Congress. And we went to the border and we saw everything firsthand because we we all talk about it so much, especially here on Fox. I wanted to go see for myself. And it is a foreign policy and national security issue. It's our number one national security issue. Absolutely. And and then recently we were in Pennsylvania with Dr. Oz. Um, We actually the first event with him and Dave. Dave McCormick, as you'll remember, Dave, you know, lost under a thousand votes. That's a close one uh, to Oz. And then we had uh, Director Ratcliffe, who was um, former congressman and was Palm, uh, excuse me, Trump's uh, director of national security. So we're having these conversations, um, talking about foreign policy. They're an hour long. You'll see about two to four campaigns coming up. Uh, We'll be around the country having these serious conversations. All right. And it may not be the number one issue in voters' minds, but it has to matter and you're trying to have productive conversations with these candidates with a big election coming up November the 8th. Morgan Ortegas, great to see you. Thank you. The Guy Benson Show returns with Janice Dean next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. (laughs) His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. The podcast is free. It's on demand every day, as we like to remind you. Fox News alert, a story that we're watching closely off the coast of Florida now over the Florida Keys, this hurricane, Hurricane Ian, 
Category 3, winds at 120 miles an hour, on a path, it appears, toward potentially a direct hit on the Tampa area. And it is obviously scary. We've seen these weather events, especially down there in the past, and you never really know, will it peel off in a different direction? But at least for now, a lot of the officials down in Florida are sounding the alarm in a major way. People need to pay attention to what these officials are saying. The governor of that state, Ron DeSantis, gave an update just a few hours ago. And here is part of what he said in Cut 20. Yesterday uh, evening, there were a lot of solutions bringing it right into Tampa Bay. Now you have a lot of solutions bringing the landfall into the Sarasota area. Uh, There's still uncertainty with where that exact landfall will be. uh, But just understand the impacts are going to be far, far broader uh, than just where the eye of the storm happens to make landfall. Uh, In some areas, there will be catastrophic flooding and life-threatening storm surge. And so if you're on Florida's Gulf Coast, uh, from Naples all the way through the Tampa Bay area and some of the counties north of that, uh, that could be something uh, that happens. And and it will certainly happen uh, in some parts of Florida's Gulf Coast. Joining us now is Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News and a New York Times bestselling author. Janice, good to have you here. Uh, Thanks for having me, Guy. All right. What's the very latest? What have we seen from this storm so far as it's made its way toward Florida? And now what are the projections showing? What comes next? Well, I'm glad you played that uh, soundbite from Governor DeSantis because he's absolutely right. You know, we've gotten really good at forecasting these hurricanes. We can give you a a pretty good idea of of where we think the center of circulation is going to come on shore. But when it comes to Tampa Bay, one of the most vulnerable areas where a hurricane, a major hurricane can, you know, come on shore, you know, that's where we worry, right? Does it come on top of Tampa Bay and does it push all of that water, you know, seven to 10 foot storm surge into this very vulnerable coastline that a lot of it is, you know, below sea level and the water has nowhere to go. The current projections are now sort of south of this area. So Fort Myers, Sarasota, um, concerned with, um, you know, Punta Gorda, Fort Myers definitely could get hit. I think the bottom line is, you know, we're still not totally sure where the worst impact is going to be. However, I need all of those areas, you know, in and around Tampa, Fort Myers, Sarasota, Punta Gorda, Charlotte Harbor, you need to be, you know, very vigilant. And and if you're hunkering down, you need to know that the power could be out for days. You could be dealing with two feet of rainfall in some of these areas. And the rain is going to go well inland. So places like Orlando, uh, you're going to have heavy rainfall. You won't have the storm surge, uh, but we're going to have at least tropical storm force winds for a duration of time. And then the other part of this that's very uh, unsettling is that it's going to slow down. And I, I, we don't know exactly where that slowdown is going to occur. Does it happen Wednesday afternoon? Does it happen Wednesday evening? But there is, you know, this sort of um, consensus that we're going to slow down. We're going to see the storm slow down. And that means a prolonged time of heavy rain, the possibility for storm surge uh, and those hurricane force winds. It's currently, as I mentioned, a Category 3 hurricane. How does that get determined? And some people say, oh, well, 3, that doesn't sound great, but it's not, you know, mega 4 or 5. How quickly can that change? And can't lower-ranked or rated hurricanes 
end up being extremely destructive. Like people shouldn't just write it off because it's not a four or a five, right? Yet? Absolutely. Uh, Hurricane Katrina, that's a really good example of a hurricane that at one point was a cat five. And when it made landfall across Louisiana, Mississippi, it was considered a category three storm, but it had a storm surge of a five. So at one point, I believe there was a 30 foot storm surge. Um, So you can't really gauge categories. And um, when you're talking about this vulnerable coastline, we do think this is going to be a category four at one point, but then it also is going to be sort of attacked by upper-level winds, and it's going to weaken as it moves closer to shore. But, you know, that doesn't mean we're not going to see – we're going to see a significant drop in storm surge. Storm surge is the biggest killer of all hurricanes. So even if this downgrades to a 2 or even a 1, you're still going to be dealing with, you know, possibility of deadly storm surge depending on where the coastline is uh, and then the shelf – and if you also look at Sandy, what happened here almost 10 years ago in the New York City area, you know, we call that a superstorm because it lost its tropical characteristics and took on more of a nor'easter. But people were like, oh, it's not a hurricane, so it's not going to do much damage. Well, people still are yeah. out of their homes from Sandy 10 years later. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes don't make all of your judgments or calculations based on that kind of superficial thing. But there is this pull and push decision-making process that a lot of families face where they are maybe debating leaving. Sometimes you'll get evacuation notices, orders, recommendations, or, you know, if you're not going to leave, be prepared for X, Y, and Z. Janice, as people in Florida are trying to make that calculation for themselves to stay safe, but maybe not, you know, being able to afford to fill up their tank of gas and go stay somewhere else or get a hotel room and they're thinking, you know, maybe we'll just ride this thing out. What are some of the best pieces of advice whenever you are talking about this type of a storm that you think people ought to keep in mind, top of mind, as they make these choices? Well, I think you've got to know what your coastline is like, right? Where you live, how vulnerable are you to things like storm surge or 12 to 18 feet of rain, right? I think, you know, Tampa Bay, if you live in that area, I hope that you have evacuated because the risk is too dangerous for you to stick around. Now, if the storm just dogged to the south, I mean, there are still vulnerable areas like the Fort Myers area, Sarasota um, and Punta Gorda. That area has been hit hard by hurricanes in the past as well. So what I'm fearful of is people who have just moved to the area and have never experienced a major hurricane. Um, the last Oh, time that's a good region, point. A lot We talk yeah. all the time politically about everyone moving to Florida for politics reasons, economic reasons, and how that might play in an election, well, you you have some, you know, with all due respect, hurricane newbies. They're not Floridians who deal with this every single season. It might be their first or second season down there ever. I think it's extra important for them to recognize that learning curve. Mm-hmm. I think it, you rely on your local officials as well, right? And and living in Florida, you have to know that this is a tropical paradise that has its risks, and hurricanes are one of them. 
so I think you, you just have to rely on your local officials. You have to be very cognizant of, of where you live and the risks that you have. I know people that are still in Tampa Bay and have not left. And they say, well, my house is, you know, is can withstand a 12-foot storm surge. Well, okay, you know, those are your measured risks. You have to decide for your family. My job is to give you the forecast as the best of my ability, and it's your job to protect your family and do what's best for you. Janice, any other pointers about what we should be looking for? I know leave it to the experts, leave it to people in your profession, leave it to the local officials who are very good at this to dispense timely advice. But in terms of folks down in Florida or other people just concerned about their friends and family in Florida, what are the big things, at least that you're tracking, that we should keep an eye on as well about the ultimate destination of this storm and how severe it could get or or hopefully not? Well, I think, listen, you have to prepare for the worst. You have to, and you have to hope for the best. And um, I think the vulnerable areas like the Tampa Bay area, you, you should have evacuated if you haven't done so. You know, you, you, you are planning to stay. You have to know that there could be power outages for a week or more in some of these areas. You have to understand that emergency um, responders are not going to be able to get to you if there's floodwaters. Um, you just have to know that once you make a decision, you have to live with that and you have to be as best prepared as possi- as you possibly can. You know, make sure everything is charged up because once those batteries are, are gone, then, you know, you're kind of uh, you're kind of on your own. And so I, I just, you know, listen, hurricane season, it just takes one to make it a bad year. And it's been very, very quiet. And that's what I'm also concerned about, Guy, is that people have gotten a little bit complacent. Um, so just listen to your local officials. You know, they know what to do in Florida. The governor is is very well versed in uh, tropical systems. And I think he's doing a good job making sure Floridians know the the, the risk and it's now up to them uh, to do, you know, what's best for their family. Yeah. And as you said, it only takes one. And there are indications this could be the one and it could be really bad. And our prayers are with the people of Florida. Uh, keep your local officials top of mind, all of their updates, local media, and then the Fox Weather team as well covering this all day on the Fox Weather app, and then they're on and off the news channel and the business network all day as well. It's a very big news story. Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox, our guest. Janice, thank you. Oh, thanks, Guy, and God bless Florida. Absolutely. We will take a break. When we come back, we will return to politics, some sound from the White House and the president's spokeswoman. I've got a few things to say about a couple assertions from Corinne Jean-Pierre. That's coming up right after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. During our conversation yesterday with Bill Hemmer, we were talking about the midterm elections. We played a little bit of sound from former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, whom we affectionately referred to as Circle Back during her tenure behind the podium. And she is now a commentator and analyst at NBC and MSNBC, and she was on Meet the Press. And she made a few correct points in my mind. One is if the midterm elections are a referendum on President Biden, Democrats will lose. I think it will be and should be, and I think they will. I'm not sure about how big the loss will be, but I think the worse he's performing – especially on the economy, the worse it would get 
for that party. She also said that one of the big, searing, lasting vulnerabilities in this cycle for her party is crime. And she specifically talked about the Senate race in Pennsylvania, which we will be actually delving into a bit more deeply here coming up in the next hour. But she was absolutely right about that. Peter Ducey, our colleague here at Fox, actually asked the current press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, about her predecessor's comments on this front. And they got into a whole back and forth on the issue of crime. It started with cut 15. Listen to this to begin. Does President Biden think America's big cities are safe? Can you say more? Well, we know that thefts and robberies are up about 20 percent in the first half of this year. So I'm wondering if he thinks America's big cities are safe. Are you talking about the New York Times story specifically? Or yeah, is that what you're referring to? The murder rate still 30 percent above its 2019 level. They're all from the Council on Criminal Justice. So I'll, I'll say this. Um, that same story also uh, stated that the crime is complicated and multifaceted. Uh, Look, this is a president uh, who has secured historic funding uh, to make sure that uh, law enforcement has what it needs. Yeah. So Biden was more than happy to play footsie with the defund the police movement and placate them and pander to them. And in fact, embrace one of the definitions of defunding the police back when he was a candidate, because that's what the politics told him to do at the time. Right. He was the author of the crime bill. He had to run away from that because it was very much passe and not meeting the moment of the left wing progressive base at that time. He had an election to win. So he was out there saying, oh, yeah, let's take some of the money for police departments and move it elsewhere. Redirect the money, which is how a lot of the defund the police people were defining it. Now, there are hardcore people saying, no, you actually have to defund the police or abolish the police. Minneapolis was probably ground zero for this, which is where George Floyd was murdered. And then they decided to go absolutely extreme left wing on this stuff and murders and violent crime exploded in that city. And they are still dealing with the consequences of what they did in reaction to a horrible thing that happened, but in a policy direction that was unbelievably reckless and foolish and dangerous and counterproductive. And you had Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both absolutely appealing to that part of their party, which is still a vocal element of their party. They always try to brag about how much they support the police. It's just let's wait till the winds blow again. And that commitment, I think, will go away in an instant. This is how they've been. This is who they are. Big law and order Democrats till they're not. And then, uh oh, that's not going well politically. Back to law and order. But what if there's another incident and their base and their donors and their activists demand something new? You think they're going to stick to their so-called principles? What are their principles on this? So they went on, Ducey and Jean-Pierre, doing their tango, and Ducey doubled down on the question, does President Biden think America's big cities are safe? KJP said it's not a yes or no question. Okay, I mean, fair enough. I think on the whole, are they feeling safe? Are they safer than they have been in recent years? No. There is an answer to that. It's no. Are there some exceptions? You know, is it a little bit more nuanced? Sure. Is it all the fault of Democrats or Joe Biden? No. Are there contributing policies of left-wing governance that have made things much worse? Absolutely undeniable, which is what I think they're trying to avoid talking about. 
And then Ducey, of course, how could he miss the opportunity to use the words of Jen Psaki against the current talking points of the White House, trying to pretend this isn't really a problem for the Democratic Party. And listen to cut 17. Jen Psaki says that crime is a huge vulnerability for Democrats. Why would she say that? I kind of I don't agree with your characterization of what she actually said. Oh, OK. Well, he was just quoting her. <laughs> Ducey was saying she said crime is a huge vulnerability of Democrats. Why would she say that? It's because it's true. Jean-Pierre can't say that, can't admit it, can't acknowledge it. So instead, she decides to sort of pretend that Ducey was mischaracterizing what Jen Psaki said. It was a distortion. It was just that lying Fox News correspondent again, Peter Ducey. I, I just I just don't agree with your characterization of what she actually said. OK, well, here's cut 18. They also know that crime is a huge vulnerability for Democrats. I would say one of the biggest vulnerabilities. Why would Jen Psaki mischaracterize Jen Psaki? Why would Jen Psaki distort the words of Jen Psaki by saying a verbatim quote that is inconvenient for the White House? What a cop out by Jean-Pierre. I mean, in fairness to her, maybe she had nothing better. When in doubt, attack the messenger, attack the Fox News guy. People like it when, you know, they try to beat up on Peter Ducey. He's more than capable of, you know, giving it right back. He just directly quoted Jen Psaki on this issue. And the best the White House can do now is not actually address or take on the words of the woman who until recently spoke on behalf of this president, but pretend like those words are being taken out of context or not characterized properly. Nonsense. They were absolutely characterized exactly correctly. And that's the problem for them. They don't want to answer the question. Jean-Pierre also is suggesting maybe there should be a conversation around changing the Atlanta Braves nickname down there in Georgia. Eye on the ball, White House. Herschel Walker, by the way, tweeting, no way. We'll be right back. Another hour straight city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it's a brand new hour here on the guy benson show our middle hour of three between three and six p.m eastern every weekday thank you very much for tuning in GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast is free on demand Seven days a week, that includes Bonus Benson on the weekends. Our Twitter and Instagram handle, if you want to follow us, it's the same one, at Guy Benson Show. So GuyBensonShow.com, at Guy Benson Show. It's all pretty turnkey, pretty easy. I'll be on special report tonight in the 6 p.m. Eastern hour, joining the panel with Brett Bayer and company. Then also, I'll be on with my friend Kennedy in her hour, the 7 p.m. hour, on Fox Business Network. Hope you'll tune into one or both. Of those shows. Fox News alert with the middle hour now here with us. The Dow closing down again in the red today, down 124 points, with the Dow closing at 29,136. Bear market territory right now on Wall Street. Well, last hour, I mentioned that we might be talking a bit more about the Pennsylvania Senate race. And I would like to focus on it for a bit of time here. 
because if you zoom out and look across the country, I think that it's one of the most important Senate races on the map for this reason. Republicans could win a majority in the Senate without Pennsylvania. This is Pat Toomey's seat that's being vacated. It's an open seat. It's John Fetterman, the Democrat, lieutenant governor, very progressive, versus Dr. Oz, the TV doctor, who's the Republican. There is a path to 51 seats, I would say, for the Republicans, even if the Democrats capture this seat. Now, that would require all the other Republican-held seats to be controlled by Republicans, right, and defended successfully, including in Wisconsin, Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, places like that, which I would guess overall is likely, but certainly not guaranteed in a place like Wisconsin. However, if Pennsylvania remains in Republican hands, this seat, if Oz is able to win, I think the likelihood of a Republican Senate majority just explodes. I think it skyrockets. 51, maybe more, 52 seats now in play, potentially beyond that if a red wave really gets big. So Pennsylvania is a very interesting one to watch. I also think it's important, not just in the math of Senate control, but in terms of the nominee that the Democrats have put forward. John Fetterman should not be anywhere near the United States Senate. This guy was this sort of deadbeat, mooching loser. And the thing is, I I don't like that. That sounds like an ad hominem attack. And to a certain extent, it is. I don't like doing that kind of thing. But I just didn't know that much about him. And then I started reading. I read aloud last week from the George Will column about this guy. He lived off of his parents. His parents would shovel this grown adult tens of thousands of dollars a year into his late 40s. So that he could be a political actor. He was a mayor for a long time of this small city that was really failing. People leaving the population crashed while he was mayor. Poverty was awful. He had this very strange relationship with the street gangs. It was it was just an odd arrangement. He was this mayor, and I guess to subsidize his politician lifestyle, his parents would just give him tens of thousands of dollars a year. Now, he plays this populist, right? He wears the sweatshirts and the the gym shorts everywhere he goes. I mean, I think it's a slovenly, unprofessional look. If you want to be a United States senator, he can't wear that if he becomes a senator. I think that's him signaling that he's a man of the people. He's a working person. Look at my hoodie. Look at this sort of big bushy goatee that I've got going on. I don't look like a politician. Look at my tattoos. One of which I believe talks about like hurting people. It's a real badass. John Fetterman, such a badass that he couldn't really earn a living for himself. So his parents, mom and dad, paid for his lifestyle. He bought his apartment or his condo for $1 from his sister. That's a sweetheart deal. And so I don't know that many working people, working class people, salt of the earth folks who have mom and dad giving them 20, 30, upwards of $50,000 I saw one year. And on top of all of that, he's a radical left winger. And we'll get into some of his policy positions here and examine them a bit further in a moment.
So even if the Republicans managed to win a Senate majority without Pennsylvania, which I think is possible, having John Fetterman in the Senate is something that Pennsylvanians ought to avoid. That is not someone who I think would represent that state well in the U.S. Senate, ideologically or just given his background and what he brings to the table. Now, running against him is Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, who's famous. He was endorsed by Trump because he's a famous TV guy like Trump. There are vulnerabilities for Oz as well. I am not some flag-waving Dr. Oz fan. I think he's kind of a little weird in some ways. I think the fact that he's not necessarily, uh, let's put it this way, a lifelong Pennsylvanian has been a problem for him. He's a first-time candidate. He's new to the game. But there's also stuff to commend him. Some of the ads he's been running, I think, finally catching up on that front have been really good. He is a performer. He knows how to talk to people. He can be smooth. And his campaign has put out a video this week that I think is really good. During the Republican primary, which was brutal, absolutely bruising, Morgan Ortegas was here earlier. She mentioned it. She referenced it. Oz barely won that primary. It was ugly. It's taken a while for Republicans to sort of mend those fences and get back on the same team. And it's like you got you got to get over it. You have to to unify, to give Oz a chance of beating this Fetterman. But during the primary, this was brought up as an attack against Oz that he has dual citizenship, U.S. and Turkey. Turkish descent, Turkish immigrants, that's his parents. He was born in the U.S. And there have been allegations that he was too cozy with the regime, the government in Turkey. He's made money over there. I think some of the questions have been fair. It's not all just you know, xenophobic, ooh, look at that. By the way, he'd be the first ever Muslim American in the Senate, ever, from either party. You don't hear that often from the left. Right? If he were a Democrat, there'd be all this discussion about, oh, he's, he's slightly down to the polls. It must be Islamophobia. But we're not getting those lectures because he's a Republican. I do think some of the innuendo has been unfair. And now the left and the Democrats have gotten in on it now that he's the nominee of the Republican Party. There's been some whispering and some you know, raising of this stuff by the Fetterman people. I saw a piece at MSNBC saying, is he really America first or Turkey? It's sort of you know, playing that game, wink, wink. I'm sure they would be denouncing it coming from a right wing website. But, you know, this is how people are. They're just hacks. Right. So Fetterman put out a video from a town hall meeting where a woman got up and asked him a question about this, this dual citizenship thing and sort of the implication that maybe there's dual loyalty here and would he really be a patriotic American first and that kind of thing. And Oz gave, to my ear, a really almost pitch-perfect answer about his family, airing some embarrassing dirty laundry about the family, just sort of leveling with people in a way that actually seemed a little bit, if not vulnerable, authentic, just like, hey, here's the situation. I want you to listen to this. This is Dr. Oz asked about this point. His campaign turned it, I think, very smartly into a video uh, that that people are sharing pretty widely. It starts with Cut 25. How do you feel about dual citizenship with other countries, especially being a civil servant, as you would be as a senator? Thank you for asking the question. Uh, The reason this is coming up is because of my opponent, Uh, making a a big deal about the fact that I was born in this country, but my father and mother, as I mentioned, were Turkish immigrants. So by Turkish law, you're allowed to keep your Turkish citizenship. 
which I've kept for only one reason. My mom has Alzheimer's. Ben knows a lot about that ailment. It's a horrible disease. Six million Americans are afflicted by it. My mom lives in Turkey with it. And you lose your loved ones twice. You lose them when they forget you, and then you lose them when you lose them. So this is something I did not know. It's a very personal situation. He's got a mother living in Turkey. She's Turkish. She has Alzheimer's. And he says part of the reason he has retained the citizenship in Turkey, along with his U.S. citizenship, is because of her. He continued in Cut 26. My one sister has mental health issues. And so I have a restraining order against her in Turkey. This is a lot of dirty underwear, but it's the reality, and I'm pretty transparent about who I am. So I've maintained my Turkish citizenship, so I have custodial control over her health care. And I would compromise that if I gave it up. However, I've agreed, because this is a distraction, that if I'm elected, if I'm honored to, to allow to be serving you, that I would give up my Turkish citizenship before I were to serve in the Senate. But... I know I shouldn't have to. And to answer your question, there is no issue. There have been other senators who are dual citizens. Uh, Ted Cruz was a dual citizen. But uh, I don't want there to be a distraction about this. I, I, I know I shouldn't have to, and I can love my mom, and I can love my country at the same time. But this is politics, and this issue has come up, and I don't want it to be in the back of anyone's mind, uh, well-meaning or not. And so I've already made that commitment. We've found ways with my family to address this. And throughout the video, there splashing images of different points in Oz's life as a young kid, as a young man, with his mother, with his parents, sort of explaining what happened here. And then, you know, the angle of the sister, that's got to be painful to talk about. But he said, this is why I've done it. Now, whether that's the absolute complete story, I don't know. But that resonates with me. It makes sense for why even in this sort of combative political environment, he's been clinging to that Because of his family and that medical issue, that makes sense to me. Now, his pledge is if he wins and he's going to go to the U.S. Senate, he will renounce Turkish uh, Turkish citizenship. And the woman who initially asked the question calls back out saying, you shouldn't have to do that. He says, I know I shouldn't have to do that. But this is politics. It's a distraction. We'll find out. We'll figure out a way to make this work for my family. But I think Oz sometimes comes across as sort of like this perfectly quaffed, smooth-talking TV doctor who isn't necessarily super authentic. And then here's this deeply personal question about his identity and his family, and he just sort of pulls back the curtain and says, here's what we're dealing with. Here's what I'm dealing with. Here's the struggle with my mother. Here's the struggle with my sister. I want to have medical authority over my mother's situation because of the problem with my sister. I need... Turkish citizenship to do that. And all of a sudden, at least in my mind, I was like, oh, that is something that I think many Americans can relate to. And it was just a different side of him that I hadn't seen before. And I think it was impressive. Less impressive is his opponent for reasons that I've already outlined. And I want to get back to that as soon as we return. Some things you need to know about John Fetterman. In Pennsylvania, I say the name sort of with some disdain because I I really don't have a lot of respect for what he's done with his life. Unlike, you know, Dr. Oz, who's a doctor, he's done something with his life. Fetterman's been like a part-time politician mooching off his parents into his 40s, late 40s. And that's just the beginning of it. We'll pick this up right after a short break on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. 
I'm Guy Benson talking about the Pennsylvania Senate race. We were addressing some comments by Dr. Oz in the previous segment. I want to tackle some of my criticism of John Fetterman, the Democrat in this race, a little bit more deeply. First on the issue of education, this bothers me. I've referenced it briefly, but this really sticks in my craw. So John Fetterman is a teachers union lackey. He will vote with the teachers unions. He's basically explicitly promised to take his marching orders from them because he says he's such a big advocate and supporter of public education, right? That's his position. Except for years, he was a tax deadbeat. He had multiple liens placed against him because he owed local school taxes, property school taxes, to pay for the local schools. He was delinquent for years. I think it's like a couple dozen liens against him. It was not a small number. So he supports the public schools and really the teachers union as a political matter. But when it comes to paying his fair share, to borrow a phrase, and to do his civic duty and to actually pay what he owes, maybe he was like unfamiliar with what taxes are because he didn't really have income, got it all from his parents. So maybe mom and dad were supposed to take care of all the taxes. I mean, who can blame a 44-year-old for not knowing what income is? But he owed these taxes. He eventually, when it became more of a political problem for him, he paid them off. But they had to come after him like, like pulling teeth to get him to do his little part to fund the local schools where he wasn't paying his taxes on time or at all in some of these cases. So serial tax avoidance on this issue that he's supposedly championing. He talks about a private school that's starving public education. School choice starves public education, the resources they need. Well, I mean, clearly he was not starving, but he was not paying taxes in a way that I think he would frame as starving the public schools. Now, of course, as a political candidate, what does he want to do? Raise taxes. Oh, it's just so unfair that these uh, these rich people. Don't pay their fair shares. He doesn't pay his own taxes. A long history of this. You know, it slipped through the cracks is what he said. How's that excuse? How's that sound to you? He didn't pay his own taxes, but he wants to raise taxes on other people. That sounds exactly like a total hypocrite limousine liberal, which he kind of is in his own way. He's not paying for the limousine. His parents are. He dresses like he doesn't belong in a limousine very consciously. I think it's a put on. It's a shtick. And then he is adamantly opposed to school choice. His own kids go to a pricey private school because, of course, they do. I can guess who might be paying that tuition. I don't know. I can guess based on, I don't know, this guy's whole life. But his kids have an opportunity to go to a fancy, high-priced prep school. But he wants to deny Other families who don't have rich parents to bail them out in life to be denied that opportunity. I think that is contemptuous. I think people who've taken advantage of private schools who want to deny that opportunity to others who can't afford it. I think that is a contemptible position. And it's even worse if you've also been a tax deadbeat for your local schools. Here's Mr. Working working Class Champion here. John Fetterman, the Bernie bro who endorsed Bernie Sanders for president. 
who wants to ban fracking. The thing is, this guy also says a bunch of stuff and has said in the past crazy things on crime, on energy, on drug legalization, not like a little marijuana here or there, like heroin. And then his campaign tries to run away from it like, oh, no, that's a smear. He never said that. And there's a lot of evidence of it. In fact, because I'm out of time, we will have to revisit this. There's sound that I want to play for you. And then the media and the so-called fact checkers running cover for him. I'm not done with this. I want to keep talking about this, but not today. We'll put a pin in it. We'll be back on this Senate race in Pennsylvania and others. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. Brian Riedel up next on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Midway through the Tuesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. From our home base, D.C., glad to have you all here with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free on demand every day. And back with us is Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, longtime budget expert and policy aide on Capitol Hill. And Brian, welcome back. Glad to be here, Guy. Yesterday, we had Charles C.W. Cook here from National Review talking about the president's scheme on student loan debt and that whole bailout. And Charles was making the legal case against it, the policy case against it. We were talking about the politics and some of, I think, the pitfalls the Democrats are facing on that move. Well, we learned something new since that conversation. There's an updated estimate on the price tag of this whole misadventure. Talk to us about what we've just discovered, and then we can broaden out the conversation a little bit. Sure. The Congressional Budget Office yesterday said that the cost would be approximately $400 billion, you know, closer to $430 billion for forgiving student loans. But that's just the immediate forgiving portion. There's also the um, loan moratorium going until December, which ad- which adds about 20 or $30 billion. And then this did not incorporate the president's proposal to cap student loan payments for many people at 5% of their discretionary income, which is often about 2% of their actual income. Uh, The Penn Wharton economists have estimated that if you incorporate those factors, the ultimate cost could still end up closer to a trillion. Okay, so some of that is extrapolating and doing math into the future about a proposal that the president has put forward. But the four hundred and what thirty billion dollars is the official estimate from the nonpartisan scorekeeper in Congress of what this I still think illegal move from the president would cost. And it's not just in a vacuum. And I know we've mentioned this several times, including yesterday, Brian, but I think it's worth just plugging away at this point. That burden, that price tag benefits a very small number of people who tend to be disproportionately middle or upper middle class in particular with much higher earning potential than most Americans experience in their lives. And the burden is shouldered and shared by and paid by through tax dollars the rest of the country's money that they earn and then give back to the government. And that includes the overwhelming majority of Americans who do not hold this kind of debt that's being, quote unquote, forgiven or canceled by the president. It's just a huge wealth transfer, and one that I think has to be described accurately as unfair based on the Democrats' own definition of that word. Absolutely. 
money. They are redistributing income upward. Uh, you know, forget just working class people uh, of my age in their 40s and 50s uh, or, or even older. Even among millennials, two-thirds carry no student loan debt, either because they didn't go to college, they worked their way through college, or they took out loans and, and, paid, and paid it back. Even, even among millennials, two-thirds uh, carried no student debt. Much of the borrowing is concentrated among 6% of millennials and who, who borrowed more than $100,000. And that's mostly for medical school, law school, and business school. Now, a lot of those individuals can qualify now because perhaps their income in 2020, which is the year that they're using to determine your qualification, perhaps they had mm -hmm. lower income during the pandemic year because either they were just out of school or they only worked part of the year. But over their lifetime, these are people who are going to be making two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year by the time they get into their peak earning years. They clearly can afford to pay back this investment they made in their own education. But they're being let off the hook for an agreement that they signed up for, a contract that they agreed to, and the people who are now on the hook to cover that difference for them are people tens of millions of them who didn't go to college or who've already paid off their debt or who worked their way through school. It is just so fundamentally unjust. And I guess the politics of this, Brian, were that they felt like they were a little soft, the Democrats, in support. They wanted to motivate certain voters to come out and show up and pull the lever for them. I just think that mathematically speaking, if you get the people who get screwed by this and who feel like suckers to also think about the issue as they go to the polls – I'm not really sure it cuts the way they, they want it to because the people who get a raw deal here far outnumber the people who get a good deal. Absolutely. I mean, as you say, this makes chumps and suckers out of those who played by the rules and repaid their student loans. And there's a lot more losers than winners in this plan. Uh, in this proposal. And I think we're seeing this. The politics of it have really cut against Democrats. Republicans have started to gain momentum that they had lost after the abortion ruling. They had started to regain after this this decision was made by the president. And you can see that in the swing states, in the purple states, where Democrats running statewide are opposing this. Uh, in states like Ohio and Colorado, you have Tim Ryan and, and Michael Bennett opposing this because they understand that this is actually bad politically for Democrats, because the people who've been made chumps and suckers far outnumber the people who are getting the bailout, who, let's be honest, are probably going to show up and vote blue anyway, even without this. Yep. And the new news today, the news hook for this conversation was that CBO report with the cost of the Biden student loan handout exceeding $400 billion. So, Thank you to taxpayers for that one. You didn't ask for it. The president doesn't have the authority to do it, but he's trying anyway. That's his official policy. And as Brian just said, it's uh, disturbing, at least politically speaking, to some Democrats who are looking at the polling, probably looking at the internals and saying, maybe this isn't something that I want to hitch my wagon to for the reasons that we've just laid out. Meanwhile, Brian, I want to ask you about this. President Biden, we talked about it yesterday briefly. Over the weekend, he was at an event. And he was boasting that in 41 states plus Washington, D.C., the average price of a gallon of gasoline is now below two ninety nine. He was very excited about that. It was an applause line for him. And the Republican Party came out and fact checked him and looked at the national numbers and said, in fact, 
there are not 41 states and D.C. where the average cost is below 299. In fact, the real number is zero. That is not the case in any U.S. state right now. But he said it over the weekend. I will note that the fact checks here are coming from Republicans, not from the media. Media is very eager to pounce all over anything that Donald Trump said that was an exaggeration or false. But here is the president in the home stretch of an election where gas prices and inflation are a big issue. And he is just brazenly lying about what the numbers are. Maybe, 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 just to be fair, he misspoke and he didn't mean to say 299 or something like that. Well, here he went again yesterday making a similar claim, cut one. We've made historic progress. We've made historic progress with the price of gas down $1.30 at the beginning of the summer. In some few states, it's below three bucks. Right, so he said that in some states it's below three bucks, which is a climb down from 41 states plus D.C., which was a very specifically wrong thing that he said. Now he's being a little bit more vague. In some states it's below three bucks, and that is still completely wrong. In no states, Brian, is the average cost of a gallon of gasoline less than three dollars. There's a few states where it's close to three dollars, but still above. There's other states. More states, in fact, where it's back above $5 a gallon. And as a matter of fact, the average cost of gasoline nationally has now increased for the seventh consecutive day, Brian. I just am trying to figure out why would they send the president out there to say something so verifiably wrong that people will understand is wrong because they pay for gas all the time. I just don't see what the benefit is. When this is so easily fact-checkable, you don't need a Twitter feed, you don't need a fact-checker, you just need your eyes and your car to know that this isn't right. Yeah, and, and I mean, if you step back, gas prices were $2.30 nationwide when the president was elected. They soared to $5. They're still well above what they were when the president was elected. Um, I'm in Fairfax County outside Washington, D.C. Yesterday, I got gas for three seventy. dollars uh, I'm still paying a buck forty more than I was when the president got elected. But, you know, for the question of why, why aren't the, the president's handlers fixing this and why are they sending him out with false information? Because often it's the whole White House filled with false information. I wrote an article in National Review uh, in spring about all of the brazen lies that they've been saying on economic policy. Uh, a favorite example of mine is when the president came out with the American Rescue Plan a year ago, he, uh, he promised it would create 17 million jobs. And he cited a study by Mark Zandi, and then Mark Zandi had to go on TV and say, actually, they misread my study. It would only create 2 million jobs. But it wasn't just the president. Pete Buttigieg, um, as well as Ron Klain, went on TV and were giving the same completely insane statistic. And so it's really a matter of not just, you know, smart staffers accidentally giving the president bad information. They're botching economic numbers up and down that administration. The White House today high-fiving one another digitally on social media about a very small bump in consumer confidence. But a Republican strategist points out that, quote, a leading economic index has now notched its sixth consecutive drop, which the organization's senior director of economics said is a potential signaling of a recession. It just seems like these guys are constantly looking for any little, even out-of-context glimmer that they can point to as – some reason to pop the champagne bottles and to shoot off fireworks, and then they end up looking like absolute fools 
when other big data points in the economy point in the opposite direction, it seems like this is a lesson they are absolutely unwilling to or incapable of learning. You can't, you can't spin your way out of economic reality. I mean, they can cite a consumer confidence number, but the American people are still struggling. Real wages are down 4% in the past year. Inflation has still been 8%. Uh, American families are falling behind. And the idea that you can just spin your way out of this, that if you just find some manipulated statistic or false number or talking point, is absurd. The president can give as many speeches as he wants saying that gas prices are below $3.00. But we all drive past the gas station every day. We live this. And so it's, it's, it's comical that they're essentially attempting to spin their way out of a reality that we see every day at the grocery store, at gas station, and with falling real wages. Yeah, and it seems like the only way the reality is really going to set in for them is if it's imposed upon them by voters November the 8th, something that people need to keep in mind in the weeks ahead as the early voting process actually already underway someplace, which I think is crazy. Uh, and then as you get closer and closer to Election Day, that's it, that they will go with the spin and this nonsense as long as they feel like they can get away with it. And it's up to voters to tell them that they can't. And we'll see what happens. Brian Riedel, our guest senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Brian, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Guy. And the Guy Benson Show continues next. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. It's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. There's an op-ed in the Washington Post that I saw yesterday, the thesis of which is that the word woke is now just a dog whistle for black. So it's really just racism. When we talk about Woke Tales, this author argues, it's just black tales and it's just racist up and down. So yet again, we have the woke left trying to shut down debate by manipulating our language and declaring words or topics out of bounds. And if you use them, then you're really just a racist. It's embarrassing. Obviously, I do not accept this. I will not abide by this preposterous, insulting standard. We will continue talking about wokeness run amok. And this article is an example of precisely that. It's a cheap witless effort to intimidate people to stop talking about a phenomenon that, by the way, I would argue is driven by super lily white progressives. When you ask me who's like the average woke person in America, it's a coastal, urban, white, Chardonnay drinking woman. That's probably the peak of wokeness in my mind. And look, there are many people who are contributing to the problem. No doubt about it. But in no way is this a dog whistle or an indication of anything to do with race. But this is their one move. Right. This is what they always do. Oh, we don't like this. It's hurting us. We're not getting our way. There's a backlash against our excesses and our obnoxiousness. So let's call the term or the discussion around it racist unto itself. It's so transparent and we just reject it out of hand. FYI. I want to bring that to your attention. Meanwhile, relatedly, interesting Twitter thread by a writer and podcaster, Jesse Singel, who's been really warring and fighting against wokeness run amok for quite a while now. 
And he links to a New York Times story headlined Sundance liked her documentary about terrorism until Muslim critics didn't. And Single writes, this is a completely infuriating story about the people trying to use the kinetic power of moralizing to melt all art and culture down to pablum. I hope this film gets the attention of gutsy people with money and the wide distribution it deserves. He goes on, Abigail Disney, the grandniece of Walt Disney, big wokester, out there preening leftist every chance she gets, had been the executive director of this movie, Jihad Rehab. She called it freaking brilliant in an email to the director. Now, because there's a controversy among the wokes, she has disavowed it. The film, quote, landed like a truckload of hate, Ms. Disney wrote in an open letter. So she was the executive director and thought it was freaking brilliant until the woke crowd, to whom she genuflects and of which she's a part, decided it was bad. So then she called it a truckload of hate on a dime. Just a 180. Then they, quote, a Muslim woman saying that her opinion of whether it's offensive or not is more important than the opinions of other people of different skin colors who disagree. The woman behind the film, Wright Single, basically dedicated her whole life to understanding the roots of terrorism in a sophisticated, humanizing manner. She learned Arabic to do so. On 9-11, she was 21 years old. She was a firefighter in California. She wanted to know why and how 9-11 happened. So, according to the New York Times, quote, looking for answers, she hitchhiked through Afghanistan and settled in an ancient city in Yemen for half a decade. She learned Arabic. She taught firefighting. She obtained a master's from Stanford in filmmaking and then turned to this topic and tried to tackle it in a thorough way. And for all of those efforts, she has now been branded a racist and a bigot And they are trying to stifle and censor her work product and basically censor her art. And a bunch of people in the industry all got together and signed this open letter denouncing the film. And now she might have sunk years of her life and a ton of money into a project that I see getting positive buzz from some people saying it's thoughtful and well done. But it's now transgressed a line with a certain crowd where who knows if this movie will even survive. And of the hundreds of signatories of the letter denouncing this woman in her movie, a majority of them, the Times admits, haven't even seen the film. Of course, this is how they operate. Just a stampeding mob from place to place. And when certain people declare themselves offended or aggrieved, it's time to shut her down and do it in the most morally sanctimonious and arrogant way possible. And yet they consider themselves champions of art and free expression and thought. Just a big asterisk there from the Woke Tales crowd. Woke Tales, Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Dr. Roger Marshall, U.S. Senator from Kansas, joins me in studio straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time for the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday, sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, was hanging 
with their founder last night in New York City, thelongdrink.com. Great stuff. Check it out. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Thelongdrink.com. Our website, family-friendly, all ages, guybensonshow.com. Podcast is free, on demand, every single day, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us there. And a programming note that we've been mentioning, I'll be on Special Report tonight with Brett Baer, right around 645 Eastern, and then on with Kennedy in the next hour, the 7 p.m. Eastern hour, on Fox Business Network. So hope to see you there. Tune in live or set your DVRs. Well, joining us here in studio is U.S. Senator Roger Marshall, Republican of Kansas. He's also a medical doctor. And, Senator, it's great to have you here face-to-face. Guy, it's great to be here as well. And and this finished drink, is that a beer? I consider myself an expert on beer and barbecue. So it's not a beer. It is a cocktail in a can, basically, premium liquor, and then this sort of like grapefruity, juniper berry, refreshing soda. It's kind of like Fresca, but alcoholic. It's delicious. Well, sounds good. I think my, maybe my wife and daughter will enjoy it. I'm going to stick to beer. You're, you're a beer guy. Okay, fair enough. Oh, you should like try one sip, and it might surprise okay, you. Okay, right. I'll do it. Is your is your daughter 21 plus? Uh, absolutely. All right, I just had to verify that for legal reasons. Of here course, on the show. of yes. course, of course. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I want to ask you this: You, as I mentioned, are a doctor. You also sit in the U.S. Senate. These two issues converge on COVID. We've spoken about the COVID pandemic and various elements of it on the program before. You are now part of the charge to get an official end declared to the pandemic, which you would think shouldn't be that hard because the president of the United States went on national television in front of millions of people and said it was over. There's been a lot of clarifying and backtracking since then from his party, from his White House. How do you read this? Right. So, guys, certainly our president is talking out of both sides of his mouth. I think he really does really mentally struggle connecting the dots. When he says something on one issue, he doesn't realize how it impacts another. But Americans need to understand how the president uses these powers to manipulate us and to to usurp our constitutional rights. So, number one, he's using this emergency to justify his inflationary spending And number two, he's using to enforce his unconstitutional mandates, vaccine mandates, mask mandates are still in place for our for our uh, Head Start kids as well. And then he uses preschoolers is crazy. Preschoolers, they don't work in the first place, but certainly not in preschoolers. And then he uses it as an excuse to forgive student loans. So it is important that we end these so-called national emergencies um, and and usurp some of these powers back from the president. Except. When he goes on TV, he says the pandemic's over. When he wants to stop Title 42 expulsions at the border, the pandemic's over, right? When it suits him, the pandemic's over. When there's a power grab that aligns with his agenda and his politics, then it's not. And I think that that, I think, is a wide open opportunity for critics, including critics who have been concerned about this for a long time, to say it's finally time once and for all, to be done with this. I mean, I saw Nancy Pelosi in the House just extended their proxy voting in the House. You guys don't have that in the Senate, but they can literally phone in their votes over in the House of Representatives, and she just extended it until after the election due to the novel coronavirus was literally in the verbiage. It just feels like pick your own adventure. It doesn't feel like science. 
You know, exactly, Guy. And this is why November is so important. And I just, again, I hope Americans realize that every vote for a Democrat is a vote for Joe Biden this November. We need to make sure that those Democrat candidates are tethered to Joe Biden. They, they run as moderates, but they get up here and they're puppets of Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. Uh, I think, and, and there's the last point I would make. Americans are so much smarter than whoever's running the White House thinks they are. I saw this about the time when Afghanistan happened. We, we've done 100 town halls since elected to the Senate. And people started putting, even those moderates were saying, huh, boy, we got an incompetent president when it comes to national security. And then here he is talking about COVID policy. And none of it makes sense. You just illustrated the hypocrisy, the double standard. And they start thinking, well, maybe the president is responsible for the cost of gasoline, the price of groceries, this open border, or the safety and security of our family. And then finally, you know, back home, people want to make sure that Joe Biden is not on their local school boards. We want local parental control. Let's talk about Kansas. Your colleague in the Senate, I saw a few polls. He's up big. He'll win easily, it seems, in his reelection campaign. However, also near the top of the ballot, the governor race, very close. Democratic incumbent, Republican challenger. Kansas is sort of an interesting state. It's the plain state, heartland, fairly conservative. And yet there's this Democratic governor trying to win reelection. You guys had the abortion referendum that got a lot of attention. And it went the opposite way than people might imagine Kansas voting. Talk about the political environment in your state right now. How do you view the governor's race? And for those of us, and I know a lot of Democrats are pinning their hopes for the midterms on what happened in your state on the issue of abortion, saying, aha, there's going to be this massive wave, this majority that's going to come out, because even in Kansas, they voted down a pro-life amendment or, or, or ballot initiative. What is your political take on what's happening in your home state? Right. I want to remind people that at this time of my Senate race, the polls were saying it was tied and we won by 12 points. Um, so I think it's very much the same. Again, going back to those town halls, what people are conter- concerned about is the cost of groceries, the safety, security of their family and their local schools. Our incumbent governor locked down Laura was not only not only anticipating and participating in Joe Biden's uh, lockdown, she was the first governor to embrace him. She was the first governor to lock the kids out of school, and then she went on to lock us out of our, our workplace as well. Derek Schmidt is a strong conservative candidate that's going to stand up for 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 parents and make sure that parents control their schools. He's going to, he's the pro business candidate. He's the person that can lead our economy back. So Laura Kelly can't pretend like she's a moderate because she's governed like a radical socialist. I think part of the issue is when you have some of these Democrats who run in red states, Kansas being certainly a red state, then they win. They absolutely have to campaign as moderates and independents. Then when they get in there, With very few exceptions, they revert to the norm and they become sort of down the line, for the most part, partisan Democrats. And I think she's running into this problem that you're talking about, her own record of governance, where you can't just invent a fairy tale about yourself and have voters project their aspirations onto you because you haven't done anything yet. Once you've been in there for four years, there's a record. And 
I know the Republicans are coming pretty hard after her on that. So you think it's roughly tied right now, but you think the Republican will prevail? Absolutely. I have a lot of confidence. Derek's got a great team running his campaign. He's doing a good job. He's a great candidate. Um, again, we keep this election focused on groceries, on your safety and security, and who's running the local schools. Then Derek Schmidt is going to win this governor's race. And that would be a Republican pickup. On the issue of abortion, I think that if they had put a differently worded amendment on the ballot, the result could have been very different. It was confusing. I think it was demagogued as overreach. A lot of people were convinced that it was too much. I also don't think that the voters of Kansas are just clamoring for abortion on demand for any reason, elective abortions throughout the pregnancy, which is the Democratic Party position at this point. That's not where Kansas or most of America is based on poll after poll after poll. One interesting sort of flare up in this debate happened just a few days ago in Georgia, where Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor, who has that very extreme position that she's embraced on abortion, she made the argument that there's no such thing as a fetal heartbeat at six weeks. It's a manufactured sound that was designed to allow men to control women's bodies, or that was almost exactly her quote. And some fact checkers, quote unquote, said that is true. Doctors agree. And here's an NPR story that backs it up. I heard from many doctors saying that is not true. The way that she described it is inaccurate. You're an OBGYN, so I feel like you probably paid some attention to this little controversy. Did you have a response to Stacey Abrams? Absolutely. So Stacey Abrams is telling a lie that babies, unborn babies, should have a heartbeat at six weeks. And there's several clinical situations where we use this. One is to differentiate an ectopic pregnancy, which is life-threatening, versus uh, a pregnancy inside the uterus. So if, if a woman's having abdominal pain, six weeks pregnant, she comes in my office, and I see a baby's heartbeat inside the uterus, great. We know it's not an ectopic pregnancy. I don't want to get too deep here, but there's a diagnosis of people have recurrent miscarriages. And those women that have problems carrying a pregnancy typically at six weeks is a moment we have them come into our office. We see a baby's heartbeat. That's very reassuring. Uh, so it's the clinical standard. Uh, I have no idea where she's coming from on this, but she's shooting from her hip. Most importantly, though, I think Americans need to realize is the Democrats have a radical view on abortion. They want late-term abortion, abortion up to the moment of, of death. And our, and our sitting governor in Kansas would be there as well. Again, she has a record of voting for very aggressive abortion type of, of policy as well. Uh, so, so I think think that you're right. And so, but certainly babies, unborn babies have a heartbeat at six weeks. You can see it on all set. I've seen probably thousands of them. Yeah, that's literally your expertise, your yeah. scientific and medical expertise. I don't think Stacey Abrams has earned a medical degree from anywhere. Last I checked, uh, I could be fact checked on that, but I'm pretty confident. Senator, the issue that you've now mentioned a couple different times, and I know you're hearing about it, at all of these town hall meetings that you hold across the state of Kansas, it is the number one issue in the country, inflation, the economy. And the White House seems to have no answers on it. They keep trying to declare victory or progress, and they step on themselves. They have a celebration the day that bad numbers come out. I think sometimes in our political debate, in studios like this in D.C. and New York, we talk about it like it's this political problem for the Democrats, which it is. We all are noticing that we're paying more for everything, but I think sometimes, especially people higher up in the income scale, 
they view it as an interesting political debate rather than this existential threat to people's bank accounts, you know, dread about how people can take care of their families, get to work, pay the bills. When you talk to Kansans on this, what are some of the personal stories that you hear? Yeah, guy, I think, you know, typically people ask me, what was Joe Biden thinking when he and you fill in the blank when he left Afghanistan, when he declared war on American energy, when he declared war on American agriculture and they, they just want to know why. And they want to know what the message of hope is. You know, the stories that I hear typically are at the extremes, uh, retired couples or, or single widowed uh, retired people. Uh, or you go to the other end, pay, uh, young couples with kids as well. This is who it's really impacting, the people living paycheck to paycheck. and, and people Which is that, most of America. It, most point. of America, right? And we've, we've burned through all of our savings. Uh, and I think you're going to see that right now. And then you're going to see the stories they tell me is, look, I'm going to be buying less fresh fruits and vegetables, less protein. I'm going to be buying more carbohydrates. They don't, they don't say carbohydrates, more bread and peanut butter, more hot dogs, more preserved type of food. So I'm really effect, concerned about the long-term effect of nutrition and the health on this country. But here's the, the struggle. We understand the policies that have caused us here. It's Joe Biden's policies, his war on American energy, uh, making, uh, making it more scarce, to, uh, gasoline more scarce. Uh, from a groceries, he's driving up the price of fertilizers, the ability of farmers to uh, grow those crops as well. We see that happen constantly, and that's what drives inflation, the cost of energy, uh, the, the cost of groceries, and, and shelter housing is the third one. And, of course, he's disrupted the supply chain by paying people more to stay at home than to go to work so we can't get the supplies to build new housing. Last question, Senator. You're still pretty new around the upper chamber, right? Recently elected for the Senate, you're very young. Uh, what has been the biggest surprise about what life as a senator involves? Yeah, I tell people it kind of reminds me of going from Kansas State University undergraduate to medical school. That when I went to medical school, the people were a little bit more studious, a little bit more uh, serious, I, I would say, say as well. Very interested in the policy and having six years to, to work on that policy and to, and to actually change, it gives you a lot more freedom as opposed to campaigning basically nonstop. So I'm so glad not to be on the ballot right now. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, it can't be any more important that we make sure that if Americans get out there and vote. U.S. Senator Dr. Roger Marshall, my guest, a Republican from Kansas here in studio. Senator, good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, great day. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The happy hour continues here on The Guy Benson Show. I saw this tweet earlier from Darren Ravel, sports journalist, and it seems appropriate and relevant given something happening in Major League Baseball right now. On this date... In 1998, in Major League Baseball history, a man named Phil Ozerski, a fan who was earning 30 grand a year in his job, caught Mark McGuire's 70th home run. In the famous home run chase of 1998, McGuire and Sammy Sosa, both in the National League Central. Of course, they were both roided up at the time, but everyone was all excited it was fun to watch, and number 70 for McGuire was caught by this fan. And we discussed this on the show recently. If you caught one of these history-making home run balls that could be worth something, 
Would you give it back? Would you negotiate? We had this whole debate during our happy hour a couple days ago. Well, at the time in 98, this fan was offered by the St. Louis Cardinals in exchange for the ball. He would get a signed bat by McGuire, a signed ball by McGuire, and a jersey. And all the fan wanted in addition to that was to meet Mark McGuire. So the terms were almost there. I'll take the free stuff. I get to meet McGuire. You get the ball back. Mark McGuire refused to meet him. He wouldn't do it. So this fan, Phil, said, okay, no, thank you. He doesn't want to meet me. I'm going to keep the ball. And three months later, he sold that baseball for $3 million, which was a win for him. And, Dan, you were saying you looked it up. That ball is not worth anywhere close to that these days? Yeah, I was reading that because of the steroid and the implication of it, and it's not the real record anymore close to it. It's worth only about in like the 200000 to 300000 range and not the $3 million it was once sold for. Yeah, so even amid Biden's inflation, the value of that baseball is way down. And the context of this is Aaron Judge still sitting on 60 home runs trying to tie Roger Maris for the AL record and what many people argue would be the real home run record in Major League Baseball. No performance enhancing drugs or substances. But he's been there for, what, six days now, six games, just sitting there at 60. I think it's in his head. I think it's gotten to be too much pressure. There's so much hype around every single at-bat. I think he'll get it. But after a while, I said, you know, it's too much at Yankee Stadium. Everyone's standing for every pitch of his at-bat. They've got cameramen on the field as he walks out of the on-deck circle up to home plate. It was just a lot. And by and large, with the exception of last night, the team's been winning, so I don't really care. But Judge will get 61, I think, by the time the regular season is over. And hopefully more and get him back in the groove of things, get the monkey off his back so he can just focus on helping the Yankees win in the postseason. They've already clinched a berth. And I will now move on from baseball because we're up on a break. We will take it when we come back. The happy hour continues right here on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Earlier in today's program, we caught up with our friend Morgan Ortegas, who swung by the studio here in Washington, D.C., talking about Iran and the huge uprising there, especially among women. Interesting conversation with former State Department spokeswoman Morgan Ortegas. Here's part of it. The beauty of the Persian culture and the Persian people and their desire to live freely. And then... You contrast that beauty with some of the scenes playing out in the streets. This is radio, so we only have audio, but I think this audio is disturbing. I think it's piercing. I think it's impossible to listen to it and not feel moved or disturbed in some way. Scenes and sounds from the streets during this crackdown of the protesters against them. Cut 29, a little snippet. Awful to listen to. And these are regime thugs grabbing, beating, dragging away these women who are standing up and removing their hijabs and their 
head coverings, burning them in some cases. I mean, it is incredible courage to do that. And you just have to admire it from afar. And you just you fear for their safety and for their future if they end up not toppling the regime. The regime has the guns. I know some people are calling for the U.S. to do more. I'm not sure that's the right approach in Iran. If it's going to happen, it's going to have to come organically from their people. I, I just agree. wonder what, what your thought is on that. What can we be doing? You just feel helpless. You want, you want to do something. You want to help these women beyond just speaking. But realistically, would that be even in their interests? So, well, first of all, what you don't do is that you, you don't um, empower their oppressors. That's step number one. Um, and I know we're going to talk about U.S. policy. Actually, let me take a quick pivot. I would just say, in, in addition to this audio that you played and all the pictures, there's also some really moving pictures um, and videos of women uh, online in Iran who are cutting their hair, who are you know not veiled and, and are taking scissors and just cutting their hair. I just saw a woman doing it at her brother's funeral who went out to peacefully protest. Um, and so these are courageous women. Uh, I, maybe I missed it, but I, I failed to see where the squad has issued a statement to stand behind these women. I saw, I think, AOC put out a statement and compared it to the fight for abortion rights in the United States. Oh, Jesus. Um, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, it's beyond beyond ridiculous. They've been conspicuously silent because they are part of the uh, a part of the class uh, that wants to elevate and empower the oppressors in Iran. So a lot of times, listen, you've been on trips with me overseas with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former secretary. Um, there are not clear black and white good and bad choices in most situations around the world. And a lot of people listening say, well, this is terrible that this is happening in Iran. You know, why should we care? Um, in U.S. foreign policy matters, because do we have a uh, silver bullet, so to speak, to take out this regime? No, we don't. We had no plans in the Trump administration uh, to put any boots on the ground or to take any military action, save taking out terrorists, as we did with Qasem Soleimani. Um, but we drew very clear red lines in, in, for them in the sand. Um, they could not touch the hair on the head of an American. They knew that. Um, and, and so when you look at the when you look at the Middle East and when you look at this theocratic revolutionary regime, um, uh, we instituted the maximum economic pressure campaign against them. What does that mean? That's a lot of words to say. Uh, we decided to make the regime's life tough. We said, you know what? We may. It, it's up to the people of Iran who govern them and who control them. But we are not going to do business with you. We're not going to tolerate you. You will not be accepted into open society, into the community of nations until you behave like a normal nation, until you stop threatening to annihilate the state of Israel, to annihilate us, um, and, and until you stop funding terrorism. Now, remember, this is not a Republican statement. Republican and Democratic administrations all certify that Iran is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, in January of 2020, Mike Pompeo uh, declass had a bunch of uh, intelligence declassified that showed that Iranian, the Iranian regime had been harboring al-Qaeda senior leadership in Iran. These are all facts. <laughs> These are from the intelligence community. That full interview and all of today's show available online, on demand, the free podcast every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast, it's all right there. No charge to you. When we come back, the home stretch, producer Christine has been sandbagged by her husband. She's mad. She wants to write a big check to make it go away. We'll discuss after this.
For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show, Tuesday edition, back in D.C. after a lot of travel. I am happy to be here in the home studio, the Tony Snow studio at the D.C. Bureau. Check me out tonight on Special Report. I'm joining the panel with Brett and company. That's around 6.45 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. And then also scheduled to join Kennedy in the 7 p.m. hour on FBN. So another busy broadcast day in the world of yours truly. Hope you will join us for some or all of the above. And here on the radio show, of course, we remind you, the podcast always free of charge, on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. Well, right before the break, I teased something happening in the life and times of producer Christine. She was lamenting on the call, the planning call earlier today, something that her husband has done. And, of course, I feel like this show almost exists as marriage therapy for this happy couple. They are mostly happy, but they sometimes have disagreements, and they work out the disagreements mostly on national radio. She talks here. He listens to the home stretch, and then they have a head start on their conversation to smooth things over or work it out. So my role as an unlicensed and uncompensated counselor in all of this continues. So, Christine, the latest skirmish involves your daughter's school and what some sort of parental involvement role that you've been lassoed into. What happened here? So what happened is uh, Megan goes to a Catholic school. So we pay, obviously, for her tuition for her to go there. And then on top of that, because the Catholics love for everybody to donate so much, uh, you have to give a certain amount uh, when you a say donation. the Catholics, you, you yourself are Catholic, yes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. putting myself just, in just there. Just to clarify. Okay. So they love donations. So you've got mm-hmm. the tuition that you have to pay, and then there is a required donation. That just sort of seems like why not just add that number to the tab and call it a day? I, I almost would resent a required donation more than just including it in the actual cost. Well, I'm going to explain why. Because you either write a check and send it off to the school and call it a day, or you can work off that donation by donating your time to the school. Hmm. Like indentured servitude. Uh-huh. Yeah. To a certain extent. Okay, so you have a choice. So mm-hmm. if you're a family that can afford – the check is what, a couple hundred dollars? Uh, it's a little more than that. Yeah. But okay. So if you can afford that, you write the check mm -hmm. people who might, you know, maybe blanch at that dollar amount or who feel like they would prefer to donate their time. They have that option as well to what go to the school and be proctors for things or what it would, you know, you have to like volunteer for, you know, the bake sale. Have you ever heard of a tricky tray? I have not. So a tricky tray, it's kind of cool. Uh, It's all these baskets and all these um, cool prizes, like, you know, nice handbags, maybe even like a small TV or something that has been donated to the school. And then you get raffle tickets and then you put in like a ticket for what you might want. Like maybe you wanted a coach purse. So you put all your tickets that you bought into the basket and then they pull out a name and you get that prize. It's called tricky tray. 
So you've got a couple options throughout the year where you can sign up for something and you can be a chaperone or help run some sort of extracurricular activity or after-school function. So what's the disagreement here between you and Bobby? So Megan has been going to this school for two years, and guess what we have been doing? Granted, it's COVID times, but we did have things that we could have volunteered for. We've been just writing a check and calling it a day. Time is money to me. I feel like you would agree with me on this one. Uh, Apparently, Bobby has decided, without telling me, we're not writing a check this year. We are donating our time. And I got an email yesterday that said, I have been signed up for six hours Saturday afternoon to work at the school carnival at the food court of all places. Do I look like a gal that belongs at a food court for six hours? I mean, sort of. But you didn't sign yourself up. Did Bobby specifically sign you up for this? Or did he just say, sign us up for whatever so we can fulfill our hours, and they assigned this to you? How did this come to pass? He specifically put me on the food court. I said, couldn't I be like a a ticket taker for a ride? Or couldn't I operate the rides? But apparently that's done by professionals. He didn't even mention this to you at all? All of a sudden you have an email that six hours of your Saturday is gone? Yep. Did not even mention it to me. And the best part is... I go, what did you sign up for? Because I hope I'm not the only one doing this. He signed himself up for security. Not really sure what that entails. He's the muscle. That makes sense. He's the muscle. (laughs) He's intimidating people with his tattoos and everything. That's fine. He's going to get the kiddos safe. But what time are we talking about? Where are these six hours in the day? In the afternoon. My whole afternoon. Oh, that's usually like prime day drinking time for you when you're off in some bar you know dark bar drinking ranting against oh. people probably me why'd you have to go say dark bar on a, and don't forget on a really bright day yeah that's your favorite i remember <sighs> during covid the only thing you wanted during <laughs> lockdowns was to go to a dark bar and drink during the day when it's super bright out it was a very specific fantasy that for some reason has stuck with me and now i'm trying to lure you down to like, oh, Helligans or whatever in your local neighborhood as opposed to going and doing this duty that you didn't even agree to, Christine. This was against your will. This was yeah, without consent. I did not. No, I did not agree to this. I did not say I wanted to do this. We really never discussed, you know, donating our time. I had mentioned maybe that tricky tray thing or they, you know, they do a wreath sale uh, in December. I thought that'd be cute for like a couple hours. I didn't, I didn't want to sign up for more than maybe like two so it seems what like if, a lot. since, and this is very much unlike me in these disputes where I almost always side with Bobby, but what if, since he did this without your knowledge or talking it through with you and just gave up your Saturday for you on your behalf, what if you just decided to cry uncle and write a multi-hundred dollar check to make the problem go away for the rest of the school year and just hand it in and say, guess what? You can still go do security, but I'm not going to the food court because I paid $500 or 600 whatever it is, uh, and just be like, surprise, that was my executive decision. How would that go? So I'm going to tell you something. I probably I, – listen, I do a lot of crazy things, and I put Bobby in very awful positions, and you know, he's always saying, oh, God, what has she done today? I think it's like more awkward and embarrassing than awful. But oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I don't know if I would do that, like, you know, behind his back, but mm. I, 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 maybe I would. I don't know. You think I would? 
Well, I mean, just picture yourself <laughs> in some food court. It's going to be gross or hot in there maybe. You're going to have to wear a hairnet. You're going to have to wear a face mask. I'm an ill-fitting oh, apron of some sort for six hours, just chained, chained to like one of those plastic pop-up tables. That's what I'm envisioning. Yeah, like, <gasps> oh my God, I just had a brilliant idea. Wow. Okay. Well, this is this is actually. Oh Dan, my God. Can, uh, can we get the Fox News alert? All right. Christine has a brilliant idea. Now, let's just wait if we agree with that particular adjective because she has a lot of these and many of them turn out to be suspect. But all right, lay it on us, Christine. What if I wear my hot dog costume? (laughs) I'm sure, like, the food court's going to be like hot dogs and hamburgers. What if I wore the hot dog costume there Saturday? It would be a hit. Well, with whom? With the kids? Anybody, don't you think? I think. The most important question to be asked here is, you actually have a hot dog costume? That wasn't something that you rented for one day because you lost a bet? You have a hot dog costume in your possession? Yes, of course I bought it (gasps) at, like, the Halloween store. Oh, I did not know this was a belonging of yours. I thought that was a one-and-done type of thing. No, you have – you probably lounge around in the hot dog (laughs) costume on vacation and stuff. You secretly love it. Oh, my God. That would be so – I mean, I would totally bring all the people to the tent, don't you think? And that might get – You just sort of go out there and be just like a dancing hot dog. You wouldn't have to do much work. (laughs) You would just have to, like, get people's attention to come in and pay for food. That's not a bad idea because I did tell Wyatt and Dan I'm very worried about the register. I'm not good at, like, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I got fired once from a job. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not good at quick math. And I told Dan, I once got fired when I was a teenager from a pizza place because of it. And Dan goes, well, I think your math is probably better now. And I was like, Dan, I don't know. I don't think so. No, I, I would not <laughs> I think, think so. I would not think that at all. The awkward thing's going to come when all of a sudden the crazy woman in the hot dog costume is out of control for some reason. It's like, we believe this individual may have been drinking. We're not really sure, but we're getting lots of complaints. And they have to call in security. To deal with it. And then all of a sudden it's Bobby. Right? And we've got a, we've got a standoff between husband and wife. I, I feel like all of this could be avoided with the writing of a check. I, I tend to agree. I have tears in my eyes right now just thinking Bobby has to go find the hot dog and arrest her. No, like he'll know exactly who it is. He'll get – it'll come in on the walkie-talkie and he'll be like, oh, God, what are we doing? He might go race – out and hand in a check to avoid this type of situation in the future. I also think now that you have this idea in your head about the hot dog costume, uh-huh. you would now pay them to go and quote unquote volunteer at this thing. So long as you're allowed to wear this embarrassing costume that you hate so much that you love talking about it and wearing it. I think you're, yeah, I, I think you love this. I didn't even think, I can't believe I just thought about this. This is, this is making Saturday not so bad. Um, I did have to cancel my Manny Petty for this, but it's not, it's making it not. Oh, maybe you and I can go for Manny Petty's on Sunday when we get to um, California. Oh, that is true. We're going to California the very next day. So you have to work <laughs> all day mm-hmm. as a hot dog mm-hmm. and then board a no, cross-country well, flight for a work trip? Yes. Oh, that's quite a weekend. I but look, know. hey, if if you're treating me to a mani pedi, which is what I'm hearing here, you're offering 
to oh. pay for my Manny Petty, which I've never had before, if you can believe it. Um, I'm down. Or how about this? Here's the fair bargain. We go to the spa. You get a Manny Petty. I get a facial and massage. You treat. And then we're good. It's a deal. It's a date. Best friends on Sunday. Thank you, Bestie, for agreeing to all of this. And I think we have a plan. Well, Bobby's going to hear this whole segment, by the way. And tomorrow I want to know if he has already written the check. (laughs) Because he's already worried about it because Christine had a thunderbolt from heaven. And it was her hot dog costume. And my guess, if I had to bet, is the hot dog costume does not get worn on Saturday. But I don't know. She might be pretty excited about this. Well, if that's not a reason to tune in tomorrow, I don't know what is, aside from our fantastic guest lineup already coming together. Also tonight, reminder, Fox News Channel, special report, I'm on the panel, then Kennedy, FBN, and the 7 p.m. hour. Back here, same time, same place on the radio, Wednesday for The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.